0: I'm going to talk to you today about the law around children and their autonomy in relation to medical care, particularly very unwell children who refuse treatment. So let me start with an example. So imagine you're a judge on call and a hospital comes to you with a terrible dilemma. They're treating a very ill child. He's only 15 years old, 15 years, 10 months to be precise. Um, He has leukemia and he needs medications to hopefully help him get better. Now, if he has the conventional treatment There's an 80 to 90% chance he will go into full remission. He'll be fine. And there's an alternative treatment that will only give him a 60% chance of remission. But there's a problem. Taking some of the conventional medicines will mean he will need a transfusion of blood. And he and his family have made it clear that he doesn't want a transfusion because it's against his faith as a Jehovah's Witness. The hospital have been respecting this, they've been giving the alternative treatment instead, but now two weeks later it isn't working very well and the hospital fears that the small amount of progress he's made won't be sustained if this course of treatment continues. His chances have dropped to 40-50%, they're concerned he might have a heart attack or a stroke and he might suffer blindness. So the hospital applies to you as the judge to give them permission to give him the conventional treatment and if needed blood transfusions. So you are faced with what is seemingly an impossible choice. Do you respect this eloquent, thoughtful boy? Um, Do you respect his choice that he so strongly wants to make, knowing full well it might cost him his life? Or do you decide that no, regardless of how considered his thinking is, he's just too young, he's too much a child, and you can't respect his choice if it will end his short life. So do you decide to give the doctors the permission to go ahead with the transfusion if they think it's best? This is precisely the position that Justice Ward found himself in about 30 years ago um, in what we now refer to as the RE-E case. And it's these kinds of cases that I want to talk to you about and explore with you today. So what did he decide to do? Well, we'll have to wait and see on that one. I'll tell you a little later. So welcome to the first in my series of lectures on some topics in medical law. Before I begin, I want to tell you a bit about how I intend to approach these lectures, um, each of which concerns a fairly controversial topic. Now, I don't intend to try to convince you that I'm right about it or convince you of what you should think. That's not my style. I do intend to explain to you the law and the issues, and what I want to do is give you some ways of thinking about things and give you some knowledge and tools so you can form your own opinions, because these are issues that concern all of us, and these are controversial, difficult questions on which I think society and the community's views are really valuable. Now in the question time, I want to hear your views because I think we make the best law in relation to medicine when actually people like me and lawyers and the courts listen to people in the community's standards and experiences and moral positions about things. So my lecture today is partly about how we talk to children and the kinds of information we give them, and it's also about the wider issue of consent to treatment and the question of what the law should do when children refuse to consent to treatment. So throughout this discussion, I want to get you thinking about the bigger question that underpins all of this, which is the extent to which we should allow children their autonomy in relation to their medical care and whether the law needs to change. So to understand how the law regulates decisions about children in medical care, we actually need to understand how it deals with adults, um, because the approach to children sits against that wider background. And also, it's a really valuable contrast, because we don't treat children the same way we treat competent adults. So generally, doctors are under what we call legal duties to their patients. They have to do certain things because they've taken responsibility for them in the law. Um, And when they do this, that means they're responsible for both their actions, what they do, the treatments they give, and also their failures to act. And within this, their failures potentially um, when they don't give information that they ought to give. So the law requires that the doctor gets the patient's consent to perform procedures that involve anything that interacts with their body. Um, And they also have to act in accordance with a responsible body of medical opinion. So they can't simply choose what they want to do. Um, they will be negligent. If they don't do what a responsible doctor or a group of responsible doctors would have done, and we refer to that usually as the Bolam standard. Um, now, this standard extends to both treatments and procedures and the information that they perform, although it's a little different, um, as we'll see shortly. Now, in meeting this standard, what the doctor does is he or she offers the patient options, and um, they need to be non-negligent options, they need to be responsible options. And then the patient, the adult patient, is given the space in which to choose what they want to do. They can consent to a particular option, or they can refuse it, or they can refuse all of them and do nothing. Patients can't demand what they want, and doctors can't be compelled to give treatments that they don't think are responsible options. So what you can see is that adults are allowed to make their own decisions about medical treatment, including refusing treatment even if their decision is unwise, it's unreasonable, or it will result in their injury or death. So as long as they have what we call capacity, their decision will be respected. All adults are presumed to have capacity, and a decision will essentially be only taken on their behalf if they've lost capacity. And even then, it's good practice to try to listen to their voices and take account of their wishes. So what do we mean by capacity? Well, the easiest way to understand it is to see what the law says um, is a way of losing capacity. So Section 3 of the Mental Capacity Act says that um, you will have lost capacity if you are unable to understand the information you need, to retain it, to use it and weigh it, or to communicate it, to communicate your decision. And if this is the case, another authorised person can make a decision for you, and they have to do that in your best interests. Now, very importantly... A person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision merely because he makes an unwise decision. Now, that might be part of your thinking about whether someone is capacitous. But the very fact that someone makes an unwise decision, one that somebody else might not think is good for them, isn't itself a reason to say that person lacks capacity and we will override what they want and do something that's in their best interest. Now, keep your mind on that because we'll come back to it when we talk about children. Treatments and procedures can't be performed on competent adults without their consent. And for their consent to be valid, it has to be informed. Now, there's two ways in which the law regulates this um, and manages failures to provide sufficient information. One of them is battery. Now, the law on battery is such that a battery is a direct and intentional bodily contact without your consent. And when you give consent, that plus the fact that what is being done is a responsible, reasonable bodily interference, renders it lawful. Um, what the patient needs to make that consent valid is they have to understand the nature of what's going to happen in broad general terms, the act, and also what the intentions are and the meaning of it. Now, that threshold's very low, and most cases of failure to disclose, therefore, aren't dealt with via battery. They're actually dealt with via the second avenue, which is negligence. And that's much better suited um, and much more developed as a way in which um, instances where the patient isn't given information is dealt with. So under negligence a doctor will be in breach of their duty of care if they ought to have told the patient something and they haven't. And that failure can then be causally linked to the harm. So had the doctor told you of a risk that she doesn't tell you about, you might have chosen differently. So had she told you of the risk, you wouldn't have had the surgery because they didn't tell you you have the surgery, the risk plays out, and you're injured. You've causally related their failure to tell you um, to your harm. And then they can be found liable in negligence. So the really interesting question is how much do we need to tell adults to make this consent um, meaningful? What's the right level of information? Now, for a long time, the standard was this Bolham standard. Doctors, essentially, um, only had to tell patients what a responsible group of doctors would tell them. Um, And so, by and large, if a responsible body of medical practitioners wouldn't have disclosed a particular risk or piece of information, then it wasn't negligent to withhold it from the patient. Now, over time, the courts moved away from this approach, culminating in the Supreme Court decision in Montgomery and Lanarkshire Health Board in 2015. And in that case, the Supreme Court broke firmly away from this doctor-knows-best approach and said, and said that doctors have to inform patients of any material risk. And by material, what they meant it was risks that the doctor believes a person like that patient, a person of that kind, um, would want to know, so what we call the objective part, but also risks that they think the actual patient would want to know. So the person themselves would want to know, what we call the subjective part. Now doctors have to spend time in a dialogue with patients and work to discern what their values are and what their beliefs are, and they should listen closely to them and try to see what risks that particular patient wants to know. They don't just have to guess, they actually have to work with the patient to work out what this is. And they should be encouraging the patient to ask questions. And this actually just follows what was already really good clinical practice for a long time. So the law had caught up with what doctors already thought was the right way to deal with adult patients. Now, that doesn't mean that the doctors can't withhold information. They can under what's called the therapeutic exception. But this is very limited and has a very particular meaning that, again, is important when we think about children. And that is they can withhold information if they think it will cause the patient serious harm. But importantly, that harm can't be the harm that the patient will suffer from not having the treatment. They can't do that. They can't not tell you a risk so that you will have the treatment, because if you don't have the treatment, you'll be harmed by not having it. Um, Because that's in fact exactly what happened in Montgomery. The doctor didn't tell Mrs. Montgomery about one of the possible risks and how it might play out poorly, because she felt it would be better for her to have um, a natural birth, which, because that's what she believed was going to be better for Mrs. Montgomery. So she deliberately didn't tell her something to make her choose a particular option, because she thought it would be better. So it has to be another kind of harm, a physical or mental harm. So that is it in a very, I'm afraid, quite large nutshell about how the law deals with adults and medical treatment. Adults can make up their own minds. They have to have sufficient information to do so. We assume they're competent unless there's evidence to the contrary. And if they are, we leave them to the consequences of their own decisions. Um, And there are people who do believe this approach is wrong. So Jonathan Herring is a good example of of someone who's really explored the idea of whether, in fact, we ought to protect even competent adults a bit more from their decisions in a range of ways. But that's a debate um, for another lecture on another day. So considering whether we should be paternalistic, the law says no, we should not be paternalistic with adults. But that's a really nice way to segue into how the law thinks about children, because actually what we'll see with children is it really does believe that we should still be paternalistic in relation to children. So when we think about decisions and children in the context of medicine, the first thing to think about is how does the law think about decisions by children and the information that they need to have. Um, And to do that, we have to have some background understanding of how the law thinks about both parents' role in relation to children and how the law thinks about its own role, how the courts think about their role in relation to children. So Lord Scarman explained this in the case of Gillick back in 1985, and he says it's abundantly plain that the law recognises that there is a right and a duty of parents to determine whether or not um, to seek medical advice in respect of their child and having received that advice to give or withhold consent to treatment. So he says it's absolutely plain that parents have not only a right but a duty to do this, to make decisions on behalf of their children. But actually, it's better to see those rights instead as responsibilities and that these are responsibilities that are contingent on being exercised in the child's best interests. So Lord Justice Ward explained this in REA. He said parental authority actually exists for the performance of their duties and responsibilities to the child and must therefore be exercised in the best interests of the child. So parents cannot, under the law, simply make any decision they like. They are acting as the child's advocate. They are assumed to be well-placed to do this because they know the child very well. They're invested in the child. Um, And for the most part, that is what will happen. That's what parents will do. So what then is the court's role in in, um, this situation? Well, Justice Francis explains this in the Charlie Gard case, and he says, although parents have parental responsibility, overriding control is by the law vested in the court, exercising its independent and objective judgment in the child's best interest. So the court we saw in the Guard case, in Evans, in that series of cases, the court asserted that it still has the trumping say here, that it can override both children, as we'll see, and also parents, it has the final word. Now when the court makes a decision, it has to regard the welfare of the child as paramount. It has to look at the situation from the point of view of the child, and it tends to lead strongly, but not exclusively, towards a course of action that will prolong the child's life. So there is a robust presumption almost that is what the court will do. When it thinks about best interests... This encompasses medical, emotional, and all other welfare interests, and the court conducts what it often calls a balancing exercise to determine what is best. So welfare um, should be understood in its widest sense. It doesn't just mean their medical interests, means all of their interests. So let's think about then what happens when children are going to make their own decisions or how we take account of children's perspectives and children's views. Now the best way to do this is to break it down into three groups because that's how the law approaches it. And these groups break down by capacity. And that's because the law regards children, as we all do, as gaining in the ability to understand information and to make choices and to use information to weigh as they age. Um, And this affects what the law permits a child to decide. So the law effectively recognizes three classes of children in this context. And the first is those who don't and won't be found to to have capacity. Children who are so young, they simply won't be able to, to make decisions for themselves. Then there are those who might be found to have capacity. They might be considered competent. And the third are those who are presumed to have it. So let's start with very young children. Now, these are the first group of children. They're so young, there's just no chance that the law will find them competent. And these will be pre-verbal children, very young children. And with such children, the parents simply have the authority to consent on their behalf. So where there's an assertion these parents aren't making a decision in the child's best interest, then the court can be approached um, to determine what the doctors might do. And this might happen when parents are refusing a treatment um, that the doctors think the child needs, or doctors are wanting to stop a treatment and the parents want it to continue. So the parents are objecting to what the doctors think is best. Now, this is what happened in cases like Charlie Gard, Alfie Evans, Tafita Rakib. These were all cases where the doctors wanted to stop treatment and the parents wanted it to continue. Um, And in all of those cases, these came to the court, and in each the court made a determination about what they thought was in the child's best interest. So they essentially are the adjudicator and they make the decision about what to do. Now, this might seem like in these cases that you're not involving children at all. You're simply ignoring them. But that's not really not, not what happens. Yes, it is true that decisions are being made about them. But it isn't accurate that we simply set them aside. Uh, it's certainly not true in terms of good clinical practice. And in fact, in Rakib, there was a lot of talk about what did, what did Tafida want, what were her interests, before she became unable to express them for herself. And in particular, her religious commitments um, were talked about in that case. So they were trying to take account of her views. But let's then, I think, talk for a moment about how clinical practice tells us we ought to talk to children and then move on to older children, because that's where the interaction between what we tell them, how much information we give them, their competence, and how we discern that all begin to interact. So one of the really interesting things to understand about medical practice and how it's regulated is that it's done via a combination of professional guidance, professional guidelines, and the law. Um, Essentially, the the medical profession partially self-regulates. It sanctions unprofessional behaviour, and it also provides its members with a lot of guidance on what they ought to do. Um, and this comes from the Royal College, comes from the General Medical Council, it comes from the BMA, a range of sources um, from NICE as well, all interact together to direct professions about what they ought to do. And in relation to talking to children, there are some key principles that guide practice. And one of the key principles that guides medical professionals is that effective communication is considered essential to the provision of good care. So while, as we see in more detail later, information provision is necessarily tied up with questions of consent, it's also in and of itself regarded as an important element of caring for children who are ill and making the best decisions both for them and with them. So the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health comments that optimal ethical decision-making requires open and timely communication between members of the healthcare team and the child and the family, respecting the values and beliefs of those involved and the application of fundamental ethical principles, including respect for human rights. So they're actively saying we need to respect the values and the beliefs of those who are involved in this situation. All of the professional guidance stresses this, that children and young people should be kept as fully informed as is possible and as they wish to be. And where possible, they should be told about their care and their treatment and their condition. Now, what children are told, of course, is adapted for their age and competence. And it should be delivered in a form that is compassionate, that they can understand, and at a pace that allows them to take in what they're being told. And they should be given a chance to ask questions. And these should be answered honestly. There's a lot of um, material in the guidance that says you need to be open and honest with children when they ask you a question. So even though the law itself doesn't direct that children must be told things, there's no freestanding right for children to demand information, um, it is very clear that clinical practices that children must be told as much as possible. Um, How much must they be told to consent? for their consent to be valid? Is it like the way the law treats adults? Well, we'll come to that shortly because some children can legally um, give valid consent to treatment. But this raises questions about how much they need to be told. So we'll come to that in a moment. But it's certainly the case that it's not considered good clinical practice to withhold information from children. So the GMC, for example, makes it clear that information should not be withheld from children or young people unless it will cause them serious harm and not just upset them or make them refuse treatment. Um, And that if they ask you to, you shouldn't not tell them things just because they'd prefer somebody else to make the decision. There really is this push to involve children and to keep them informed. Obviously, of course, though, this serious harm element is allowing doctors to make decisions about whether or not a child will actually suffer some genuine harm, distress, and so on. You can imagine a very young child where there are things that doctors may simply keep from them because it is damaging to them and it's not necessary for their consent. So they will make um, decisions about that. So what do we do with older children? Well, the law appreciates that as children get older, their ability to understand and make decisions increases. So we'll break these into um, two groups. Some children, we'll call them older children. Now, these are children who might legally um, be competent if they're deemed to have sufficient capacity. Um, And if they are, they can then lawfully give consent to a treatment, and that will be sufficient to make that treatment lawful. It won't be negligent to do it. It won't be a battery. So, in a sense, the doctor will be given the permission to do it in the same way that the parent could have given this consent with the very young children. The child can give it. In the same way, the adult can render what the, ju- what the doctor does lawful. Now, children in this category are often referred to as Gillick-competent children, and that's based on the case of Gillick and West Norfolk um, and West Beach AHA from 1985. And that was a case in which the courts clarified to a degree um, what a child might need to know and understand to be able to consent to something and when. Now, it was on a very specific issue, Um, That was a case where Mrs Gillick was the mother of five girls, and she was very worried that they might be given contraceptive advice by their doctor before they turned 16. And she wanted, essentially, a right to withhold her consent to veto them gaining advice and being prescribed um, contraceptives. So there was a memorandum of guidance. The Department of Health and Social Security had said that doctors could, in some circumstances, give such advice and treatment to under-16s without parental consent. And what she wanted was to uh, challenge this, so she brought a challenge against this memorandum of guidance to say that it was unlawful. And it made its way all the way to the House of Lords, and the memorandum was upheld. And in doing this, the Lordship has explored what a doctor would have to do in such a situation, and how we would think about whether a child could give lawful um, and valid consent in that situation to receive medical advice and treatment. Now, it's a complicated case. There are a lot of judgments in it, and we won't go into inordinate detail in them today. But essentially in that case, at one end of the spectrum, Lord Fraser focused very much on what was needed in this kind of situation and he talked about, the sort of information a child would need, they'd need to understand the information they would be going to be given, their welfare would suffer if they weren't given advice or contraceptives because they would continue um, to have relationships and so on. So he was very focused on that specific situation, and these are still referred to as the Fraser Guidelines. But importantly in that decision, Lord Scarman made a much broader statement, and his is the statement which has really is the one that informed numerous cases and the law's approach in later cases. Now what he said was, I would hold that as a matter of law, the parental right to determine whether or not their minor child below the age of 16 will have medical treatment terminates if and when the child achieves sufficient understanding and intelligence to enable him to fully understand what is proposed. So that suggests at the point when the child can consent, the parents' rights are extinguished. They stop. He says it will be a question of fact whether a child seeking advice has sufficient understanding of what is involved. And until the child achieves the capacity to consent, the parental right to make the decision continues, save only in exceptional circumstances. Now, there are a range of other views in that case that needn't concern us here, but they're certainly, if you're interested, worth reading the full gamut of what they they say. Fundamentally, the impact of this was to say that you can assess competence in a child, and it is not determined solely by age, but rather it is based on the child's ability to understand what is proposed. So as Lord Donaldson later put it in RIR, what is being looked at is an assessment of mental and emotional age as contrasted with chronological age. So you would look at the particular child you would also look at the particular decisions. So the determination of competence is decision-specific. That is, a child can be competent in relation to some decisions and not others. Now, the courts have, over time, given us more information about fleshing out this idea of what will constitute competence. So Lord Donaldson goes on to say, and we are, it's not merely an ability to understand the nature of the proposed treatment. But it's a full understanding and appreciation of the consequences of both the treatment in terms of intended and possible side effects, and equally important, the anticipated consequences of a failure to treat. Now, in the 25 years since Gillick, the courts have explored the boundaries of what a competent child can consent to. And they've found variously that a Gillick competent child can consent to an abortion for, a six, uh, for children under 16, including one as young as 13. They've also found that children experiencing gender dysphoria can consent to the administration of puberty-blocking medications. But there are a whole range of other cases that are demonstrations of what a child is considered competent, if Gillick competent, to consent to. Now, the thing is, in most of these cases, the child's consent will be sufficient for the treatment to be lawful as long as the doctor also considers the treatment to be in the child's best interest. So remember, the child can't demand treatment. The doctor's not compelled to give treatments he or she doesn't think are in the child's best interest. But the thing is, consent by children to what a doctor considers in their best interest is rarely contentious. And of course, that's because what the child has done is agree to what was, in the professional's view, the appropriate treatment. So in most cases as well, the courts will concur. So in most cases, the courts do support what doctors think is responsible medical practice, unsurprisingly. And so potentially what will happen is that the courts might override parental objections because they will see that the child wants it and it's regarded as a responsible treatment. So, so far, so straightforward. Now we come to the treatment of young people. So I call them young people to distinguish them from older children. By young people, I mean 16 and 17-year-olds. And we have slightly different rules about how, we, how the law approaches them. So for some children, age is determinative of competence. So the Family Law Reform Act 1969, Section 8, says, the consent of a minor who's attained the age of 16 years um, will be as effective as a consent of an adult. So they essentially say consents by people over the age of 16 or 17 to treatments will be as effective as if they were of full age. So their consent is just as effective as an adult's and they are considered to be presumptively competent by reason of their age. It also says that where a minor has, by virtue of this section, given an effective consent, it shan't be necessary to obtain any other consents. It's enough. It does all the work that is needed. So no parental consent is needed to back it up. It's sufficient alone to meet the consent requirements that we saw that adults needed. So when we say young people, we mean 16 and 17-year-olds, and what they're saying is they're so close to adulthood that we will treat them as though they are competent like adults, and we'll assume it. Rather than, as with younger children, it has to be demonstrated. They have to show they have Gillick competence. So if we think then about what we need to tell these children to make these consents sufficient. So we saw with adults we now need to tell them what a person like them would want to know and also what they particularly themselves want to know. It's not as clear what we need to tell children. Now it is clear, as we saw, that it's good clinical practice to tell children and give them the information that they both want and need. They're encouraged to ask questions and doctors have to respond honestly. That is demonstrating that what clinic practice is saying is tell them the things they want to know. But does the law say the same thing? Well, Emma Cave and Craig Pursehouse have um, offered a really interesting exploration of this. They talk about how one of the problems might be, and one of the ways to think about it, if it's not clear whether Montgomery applies to children, is that another way to think about it is that if you fail to give children all of the information, and then you make a best interest determination because they're not competent, you actually might vitiate that because you've undermined working out what's in their best interest, because they can't tell you what they want and what their wishes are because you withheld information from them. So you can't really even understand what they would want because they can't know what they would want because they don't have all the information. I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. My feeling is that even though the Montgomery requirements may not seemingly definitely apply, it's probably pretty likely. Now, we have had cases in the past where, the, where information has been withheld from children. So Reel is the case from about 20 years ago where this was done. A 14-year-old girl wanted to refuse a blood transfusion that was needed to save her life um, on the basis that she was a Jehovah's Witness, so similar reasons um, as we saw at the beginning. And in that case, the surgeon had, in fact, withheld information from her about the nature of her death, that it would involve gangrene, it would be very painful, it would be very distressing, and they kept this from her. Now, really problematically... This was dealt with by saying, well, she must lack capacity. She can't be competent. She doesn't understand everything about how she will die. Therefore, she can't make a competent refusal. Now, that's a horrendous way to think about this. What they should have done is told her what she needed to know and then worked out her competence, But, but they don't. And it's probably because they are trying instead. They probably would have overridden her anyway. And in fact, in the case, they make it clear they probably would have overridden her regardless. But that case is 20 years old, and I would suggest that there's quite a good reason to believe that the Montgomery approach is likely to apply to older children as well because we've seen this move away from doctor knows best and this move towards patient autonomy. So if it does apply to children, we would probably still use the therapeutic exception in the same way. It would replicate the serious harm proviso that we see in good clinical practice. So we, I would suggest that it is very likely that we would need to tell older children who are Gillick competent or 16 or 17, not only risks that someone like them would want to know, but risks that they would want to know themselves. So all of this might seem a bit fairly straightforward. So why have I been provocatively suggesting to you that it gets murkier? Well, the reason is that there are some situations where it's not so simple, and the key area where this is the case is where competent children and young people refuse treatment. Um, And I'm going to look through these, and I want to tease out for you some of the thorny questions that this raises, both the impact of not telling children things we've just seen, but in particular, how the law thinks about competence and the debates around what we should do when we think a child is competent and what does this mean for their decision-making authority. So while the law does treat Gillick-competent older children and young people um, somewhat differently, the case law concerning them is necessarily quite intertwined. So I'm going to work through the two strands of case law together. So the courts have opposed refusals in a number of ways. The first is the idea of denying their competence in the first place. So if we come back to my example from the beginning um, and the case of the boy with leukaemia who denied blood, uh, who refused blood. Now, recall that Lord Scarman said in Gillick a child might reach sufficient understanding and intelligence to enable him to fully understand what is proposed and could then give consent. Now, he said consent. There are other comments where he talks about decision-making, but he says consent, and there is quite a lot of debate about the ambit of that. What we know is that when Ree, E, the case concerning the boy with leukemia, came to the courts a few years after Gillick, in that case the boy was nearly 16, and one of the questions that Justice Ward had to think about was whether this boy had sufficient competence to make a decision about his own care. Now he took the view, in line with Gillick, that competence was a matter of capacity, not age. So he tried to think about, does this boy have capacity? And in fact, in reality, he went to go and visit the boy, and he spoke to him. And if you've seen the Children Act, that's exactly the case that 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 film is based on. He goes and he talks with the boy to try to understand how he's thinking about things and the extent to which he might be competent. Now, he found that he lacked capacity to make his own decisions, and therefore the court could make a decision um, on his behalf in his best interest. What's really important is how he came to that conclusion So let's look at what he said and unpack it a bit. So he says, I find this is a boy of sufficient intelligence to be able to make decisions about his own well-being. But I also find that there is a range of decisions, um, some of which are outside his ability to fully grasp their implications. So impressed by as I was by his obvious intelligence, by his calm discussion of the implications, by his assertion that even that he would refuse that well knowing that he might die as a result. I still, he says, I still don't think he has a full understanding of the whole implication of what refusal of that treatment involves. Now let's remember that with adults who have um, lack capacity, the way we discern whether they lack capacity is they simply have to lack the ability to understand or retain or use and weigh the information. But here what's being asked of this boy is he needs to understand the whole implications. And because, the doc, because Justice Ward says he doesn't understand them, he decides that he is not competent. I think it's important to go on to some of the other things that he says. In the next paragraph, he goes on to explain that the boy doesn't appreciate how frightening it will be to die when he begins to fight for breath. But he notes, though, that the doctor has felt it's not necessary to spell this out to the boy. The doctor's decided not to tell him how frightening it will be, And Justice Ward agrees and says, no, he doesn't need to. No, this is not appropriate to tell him that. But at the same time, saying, well, he doesn't really understand. But let's not tell him what he might need to understand. And then he goes on to say, I'm quite satisfied, therefore, that A, doesn't have the sufficient comprehension of the pain he's yet to suffer or the fear that he'll be undergoing or the distress, but in particular, he says, I don't think he will understand the distress he will inevitably suffer as he, a loving son, helplessly watches his parents and his family's distress as he dies. I find he has no realisation of the full implications which lie before him as to the process of dying. He may have some concept of the fact that he will die, but as to the manner of his death and the extent of his family's suffering, I find he has not the ability to turn his mind to it, nor the will to do so. And who can blame him for that, he says. But think again, what do we ask of adults? We don't ask them that, we don't think about that. There are numerous cases of adults refusing care and dying. There are cases where the court laments it but still says it's your decision as an adult. There's a case of a woman who refuses kidney dialysis because she thinks her life has lost its sparkle. And she is not lectured in a sense almost about, you must understand how everyone around you will feel if you make this decision. And this is precisely why how we talk to children, how we think about them, and how we approach their questions of competence all bound up together. On one hand, he's being having information withheld. On another hand, he's being described as unable to understand, even though he is clearly demonstrating himself to be articulate and thoughtful and considered. Now, on top of all of that, Justice Ward also engages with his own views on whether this boy can form a real and true religious conviction, and he doubts that he can. So what he says is, I'm far from satisfied that at the age of 15, his will is fully free. He may assert that it is, but his volition has been conditioned by the very powerful expressions of faith to which all members of his creed adhere. So he's essentially saying he's been influenced by everybody around him in forming his religious views. And he says, I've also taken account of the fact that teenagers often express views with vehemence and conviction. All the vehemence and conviction of youth, he says. Those of us who have passed beyond callow youth can all remember the convictions we have loudly proclaimed, which now we find somewhat embarrassing. I respect this boy's profession of faith, but I cannot discount at least the possibility that he may in in later years suffer some diminution in his convictions. So he's essentially saying he'll change his mind because he's a boy, because he's a teenager. Teenagers change their minds. And so on that basis, he says he cannot be competent. He concludes that while he has to try to respect the boy's faith, he's got to override his decision um, because allowing him to take a choice that will shorten his life isn't compatible with the boy's welfare. Now, we see this approach in numerous cases post-Gillick, where the court finds that the child either lacks competence and therefore creates a path where they can um, easily simply make a best interest decision or they think their capacity is insufficient relative to the seriousness of the decision. So it's not that they're entirely incompetent, but they're incompetent in relation to this decision. So unlike adults, their capacity is determined by understanding and weighing information. For children, there is also the requirement to understand all of the implications, not just for themselves, but for the people around them. In other cases, the courts will find the child is competent, but they will still override them. Now, how do they do this? Well, for competent children, the courts place considerable weight on their child's views, but they aren't determinative. Now, there are two cases post-Gillick that represent what we often call the retreat from Gillick, um, in which we see the court stepping back from that seeming commitment to the child's autonomy that we saw expressed by Lord Scarman and Gillick itself. And indeed, Laura Garman himself didn't really fully say they can make any decision. He said they can consent. So there are two cases. One is about older children. One is about young people. So RE-R is one of the primary cases in which it was confirmed that the court could override the refusal of a Gillick-competent child. In that case, a 15-year-old child had refused to take antipsychotic medication, and the local authority wanted leave to, permit, to be permitted um, to permit the psychiatric unit where she was being held to administer them despite her refusal. And the Court of Appeal held it had jurisdiction to override a minor's consent or refusal to treatment regardless of the child's competence. So Donald Donaldson says, in a case in which the Gillick-competent Gillick competent child refuses treatment, but the parent's consent, that consent enables treatment to be undertaken lawfully. So someone else can consent if they withhold it. He thought this had to be the case partly because Gillick competence might fluctuate, might change with particular decisions, so you couldn't wholly extinguish parental capacity to consent. Um, and he also said it would be impossible if we fully extinguished parental authority to consent at the point when Gillick competence was achieved because it would mean if there were situations where the child can't consent, they are unconscious, they decline to consent, they don't want to make a decision, that overwhelm, all of those reasons, you would need to retain the parental ability there. So, what this meant was that the, both the courts and parents retained the right to consent or refuse um, and override the child's wishes. In a decision that followed soon after, the position of young people was considered, and that case is called Rew. So, this time the child in, si- in question was 16 and so was presumptively competent according to the Family Law Reform Act, as we've seen. She suffered from anorexia nervosa and the local authority sought leave to transfer her to a facility and for her to have treatment if needed without her consent. Now, W argued that actually this couldn't be the case because the FLRA gave her the same right as an adult to refuse treatment. Remember, it had said that her consent if she was 16 would be just as valid as that of an adult. But importantly, Section 8 talks about consent. It doesn't talk about decisions. And so the Court of Appeal held that actually, the FLRA didn't confer on young people an absolute right to make their own decisions, nor a right of refusal. All it did was give them a right to consent, but also that they retained the right, parents retained the right, and the court retained the right to effectively consent on their behalf. So the court made it clear again that they would listen to children's views and take account of them, but they wouldn't be determinative. And so Lord Donaldson in this case reiterates his view. He says there's lots of authority that the court retains this, this parental power. And so there's no doubt, he says, that they can override the refusal of a minor, whether over the age of 16 or under that age, but Gillick competent. So essentially he doubles down and says this is absolutely true for everybody under the age of 18. Now, how did he manage to do this? Well, there's a lot of academic debate about this, which I won't go into for reasons of time. But the reason is partly because he thinks they retain the inherent jurisdiction, but also Section 8 has an extra subsection which actually says, nothing in this section shall be construed as making ineffective any consent which would have been effective. Now, there's been huge debate about what that means and what it preserves. But essentially, the view that has prevailed is that it means that other people, other authorities, retain their power to consent, parents, the court. And so the upshot of both decisions is that whatever the source of competence, Gillick being 17 or 16, does not matter? A child who refuses can have that refusal overridden. And this has recently been confirmed this year in A, B and C, D, um, in which Mrs Justice Leaven considered the question directly and looked at R, 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 W, and related cases on the question of whether the parent's ability to consent disappears once the child achieves Gillick competence. And she concluded that it does not that parents retain parental responsibility in law and the rights and duties that go with that. One of those duties is to make decisions, as to consent to medical treatment where the child cannot do so. So it seems this view stands. So fundamentally, that would seem that the law is tremendously harsh on these children, that it doesn't listen. Now, that's not true. None of this means that the child's rights are lightly set aside. There are many cases that have emphasized the weight to be given to children's views. In NHS Trust and CX, a 14-year-old Jehovah's Witness was Gillick competent. The refusal of blood was overridden. But Justice Roberts made it very clear that the Trust should, insofar as possible, try to respect this by doing everything it could to give alternative treatment to keep the use of blood products to the lowest level possible. We see the same with Sir James Munby and Re-X where he's saying the courts will really, will not lightly override a child's wishes. Um, They talk about a 13-year-old girl who's pregnant and she doesn't wish to have a termination, and they express very clearly that even if it were in the best interests of her to have an abortion, that they wouldn't do it if she weren't compliant and assenting. It's been reaffirmed in NHS Trust and X, another blood refusal case, and again it was reiterated that while the court retained the right to override, it would very much listen to children. So while the child's view wouldn't be determinative, it would be important and it would be listened to. And that certainly reflects clinical practice. And it is also clearly the case that there are cases where the clinical team will listen to the child and accept their refusal unsupported. So what should we think about all of this? Well, there's three big strands of criticism that I want to look at briefly. And one of those is that that it doesn't really make sense to say you could be competent to consent but not competent to refuse. That actually can't logically make sense. Now, the idea is that if you understand enough to be competently agreeing, then you must understand the alternative of refusal. Otherwise, your consent doesn't really have any meaning. Um, And so rather than seeing it that way, maybe the better way to think about it is what we're really doing here is saying children are able to assent. They can agree, but they're not really consenting. Um, And it might be, though, that going through the motions of having children consulted is a good thing, and there will be cases where this makes sense. But fundamentally, if we think that children can't really um, determine for themselves what they want to do, it might be better not to pretend that that is what is happening. Another strand of criticism is that the law is failing to sufficiently protect children's right to self-determination. So people like Michael Freeman argue and make the point that actually all of these cases, Re R, we W, are absolutely out of step with the philosophy of the Children's Act and with the UNCRC, which are moving towards greater emphasis on respecting children's autonomy. Now, one response that Emma Cave and Craig Pursehouse make is they say, well, actually, the law isn't really trying to protect children's autonomy at all. So it isn't the law's failing to do what it says it would do. What's really happening is the law is focused on the child's welfare, and that is what all of the court statements are about. And that what is happening here is that in pursuing their welfare, they place welfare above self-determination. So really, I think the question is, when do we stop being paternalistic towards children and allow them their autonomy? That is the, the crux of the question of whether we should do that. Um, and of course, the response that people will make is, that the problem is, whether or not children are ever able to be really competent. Are they able to make their own decisions? And if they aren't, does that mean we should step in? Or if they are, should we leave them to their decisions? Now, there's different ways to think about this. And um, One of the things I think is important is that we need to seriously think about, what is it that we think is faulty, with children's reasoning, such that there's a decision that we can override, whereas others, the decisions of adults, shouldn't be. And I think we should listen to John Harris. He explains that one way we can think about this is you could think about what does it mean to be fully autonomous? And he says, actually, what we could think about is what is it that makes someone's autonomous decision defective? And one of the key things, he says, is somebody might be defective in their autonomy because they lack the ability to reason. They can't see that one thing leads to another. Or it might be that they lack stability, that their commitment to values fluctuates. I think that partially explains what courts are thinking. That they're thinking, well, teenagers' autonomy isn't really strongly autonomous because teenagers fluctuate in their views. They change their minds. They don't form settled views. And that, I think, is reflected in a number of the statements that they make. Um, And if that's the case, then that might legitimate making decisions on their behalf. But the third thing that is an area of cont- um, criticism that I think is worth thinking about is that actually children are being held to a higher standard of competence here. So when a competent adult wants to refuse treatment, they may do so, as Dame Blutless-Loss put it in Re B, for religious reasons, other reasons, for rational or irrational reasons, or for no reason at all, even though it might lead to their death. Why is that? Because with adults, we place their self-determination and their right to it above their welfare. But we don't do that with children. With children, we place their welfare first, but in particular, we demand they know more. So as Emily Jackson puts it, most adults don't fully understand what it's like to die. And so therefore, with children, we're actually asking them something that we wouldn't ask of adults. Other people will more bluntly complain that what you're really doing is setting a standard for children that adults would fail. So it seems unreasonable to place that standard on children. So why do courts do this? Well, partly I think it's because they are faced with what they consider to be terrible choices that they want to save children from, and this is their way of doing it. And we see cases where the courts say, well, really we think our job is to get them to majority, to protect them until they get to adulthood, and that is their welfare commitment. But we also see that the courts clearly think that children lack the ability to form decisions. In Riel, they think that she can't understand the implications of what she wants to do, she can only do that when she has adult experience. Um, With Re M, they think that she's just overwhelmed by the choice in front of her, it's too much. With Re E, he thinks he can't hold a stable religious belief. And in the lower court decision in Bell, it's that they think that children can't understand and appreciate the future implications of gender transition. Now, that happily has been overturned by the Court of Appeal. So I think what we should do is really pay attention to the fact that we are holding children to a higher standard and unpack why we're doing that and whether, in fact, we ought to be doing it. Now, Jane Fortin says that actually we should just call a spade a spade, in a sense, and stop pretending that we will declare these children competent, but then override them. It's demeaning to them to say they're competent, but override them. It will be better to simply say we're not going to do that. We simply say that we have a duty to them um, that is paternalistic, and that's fine. And that's what Lord Justice Nolan says in reW as well but I think we have to be very careful when we do that. That what we're doing if we do that is we are saying that children's and young person's views are less worthy of respect. And if we're going to say that, we need to be very clear about why that is true. And we can't simply say some vague welfare reason. We have to articulate what it is about adolescent decision-making that distinguishes it from adult decision-making, such that it can be overridden in a way that an adult's cannot. So I'm going to leave you then with what happened in in re-E. So you might be wondering what happened to the boy who refused his transfusion. Well, he continued to refuse. He was transfused against his wishes for three more years, and he survived to adulthood. But Justice Ward proved to be mistaken in his belief that the boy might suffer some diminution in his convictions. Actually, what happened was as soon as the boy reached adulthood and his decisions couldn't be overridden anymore, he refused further transfusions, and some time later he died. So in the end, I think it's important to see his convictions didn't falter. He knew his own mind at 15 as much as he knew it at 18. And once he was permitted to act on his beliefs, he did. And so I think this should give us pause, that we should not assume that children can't form settled views. Some children maybe not. Some children can. We should be child-specific. But in particular, we shouldn't take away children's autonomy too easily. Thank you.
1: How do we respond to requests from children that their secondary sexual characteristics be suppressed and or that they be assisted uh, to transition? I think this is a hugely difficult area, probably with no right answers, and hope the speaker can help to clarify matters.
0: Um, So what I can do is tell you what the law says about that and explain the position. So we've recently had the Court of Appeal decision in Bell and Tavistock, now, the law thinks that prescribing puberty blockers and cross sex hormones is entirely lawful. It is. Though that case, the initial decision and then the later Court of Appeal decision were about whether or not, in part, you needed the court's sanction um, every time these were prescribed to under 18s. And the upshot of those cases is no, that it is left to clinical judgment. Um, What we saw was that the lower court had been quite dubious about younger children's ability to really understand the implications and they had felt the need to give a declaration that explained all of the things that children ought to understand and they said they needed to understand things like um, that they might suffer loss of fertility, that taking cross-sex hormones might affect their sexual function in the future, their relationships. Um, In particular, the idea that once someone starts on the pathway of taking puberty blockers, they might end up taking cross-sex hormones. This was explored in detail in the case. Um, Whether that's true or not, I make no determination on that, but this was part of the discussion. Um, And so they set this very high bar that they were saying these are things that children will need to understand, and they expressed doubts that they could understand. Now, the Court of Appeal came in, and said that this was all problematic and not to be done, and actually affirmed instead what does happen, which is decisions about puberty blockers and later progressing to cross-sex hormones are to be made with the consent of parents and children in consultation with um, medical professionals, giving them full information about everything they need to know. So that's the position that the law takes at the moment.
1: Okay. um, Another question. I am interested to understand if the consent position is the same for children detained under the Mental Health Act Act, and the issue of consent to treatment, taking into account the guiding principles of the code of practice, also the breadth of treatment under the Mental Health Act, and issues about restraint, etc. I think this might be the topic of
0: another lecture. actually. I think that might be the, the answer, <laughs> that might be the topic of another lecture. Um, I mean, I think there you would be looking at competence, but also competence in the context of a child who is suffering some form of mental illness. That probably is a bit beyond me to answer in the short space of time we have.
1: Okay, one more from the online audience, if I may. What is the legal basis for non-therapeutic medical procedures for example male circumcision ear piercing
0: So I guess with non-therapeutics it would still be the case that you have parental authority over parental authority about decisions about children and children can consent the decisions that I'm looking at are ones that relate to the offer of a therapeutic treatment. Um, but these would still be ones where it would potentially be a battery if it's overridden, if a child is having it done to them against their, their wishes. Mm. But these would be parental decisions, I would imagine. Hi there. Uh, I'm just interested, uh, you gave the story of the teenage boy of Jehovah's Witness, uh, didn't want the blood transfusion. In the situation where there's fairly obvious coercion from parents around. Where does that leave you? Because he's almost, you're going down an assisted suicide route if they're in the background pushing their opinions on him. Has that ever been known in the law before where people have gone, looked at that side of things? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of cases. There are adult cases like that as well where there's a suggestion of pressure um, in relation to refusals as well. Those will be cases where... When you look at the child's competence, the court might think, well, are they actually competent in the sense they're not making a free decision here. That would be part of what they would think about. Have they formed their own views? Are they committed to those views? And if they're being coerced, then you would probably say, well, they're not really committed to that. That's not what they actually wish. You would probably see medical practitioners in those situations being concerned about that coercion and then speaking with the court. And that might be the point at which the court steps in to say, actually, given the fact this child is not freely choosing and is not actually committed to this, that's a situation in which you would override parents. That's how I imagine those will play out if they're reported in that way to the courts. Um,
1: so as someone who's, who's been in foster care, um, I was just wondering kind of if, so if I, you know, if I was asked, if I had to make a medical decision, my parents would also have to have a say on that, even though I have limited communication with them. So I was just wondering if there's, if parental consent is kind of weighted in the same way as children's consent is kind of, you know, if you look at them and you say, how competent are they? I was wondering, like, if that same kind of rule applies to parents as
0: well? I think those will often be cases where the local authority looks at the courts for support so if you have parents making decisions where they're very much at a distance the child is very resistant to the decisions that are being made and they're in care that is exactly the sort of situation where the courts will be brought in to deal with that potential conflict that's sitting there. And that's, uh, that's again why the court has this very wide jurisdiction, and under the Children Act, there are a range of ways in which organizations like the law authority can bring in the courts in terms of decision making.
1: It's a little bit similar to that question, but if you have a young child who's under some kind of care order, so the parents still have parental responsibility, but there's someone else involved, like a guardian, or whether it's just the local authority, Where do they go to get consent is it the parent is it the guardian because the child is too young
0: i think it will depend on the particular arrangement so if the parents still retain parental authority they will be considered but i think the guardian as well is going to have a role and if there's a conflict that's the point at which you would go to the courts to have a determination between the conflicting views about what should happen so similar to doctors and parents hi thank you so much for your lecture i was just curious to know is there any sort of duty or obligation to give a family or a child access to professional psychiatric examination to consider whether they are competent and can actually give consent, or is it something that only really becomes a problem once it gets to the court? No, I think that within hospital settings and medical settings, that's exactly what is done. It won't simply be the treating physician. They will call on professionals to help in the assessment of competence. Um, My question is very similar to the previous question but is it in all court cases where there is some sort of interview process or is it just within the court process that they assess the child's capacity? So I think what happens, I mean, I think Justice will go going to visit um, the boy slightly unusual, but there are ways in which they will test what the child thinks. Often the child will make a statement, they'll have spoken to the guardian. They sometimes write letters to the judge as well that she, he or she can read. So there's lots of different ways in which they gather the child's wishes um, and assess their competence, as well as the hospital's own assessment. But definitely they, they facilitate listening to the child in that process
1: think we're going to have to stop there. Um, I wanted to thank Professor Gould once more for a really interesting lecture and for addressing these questions and thank you to our audience both in person and online for your attention. Professor Gould's next lecture will be on your body parts and the law and she'll be presenting that on Monday the 17th of January 2022 and let's thank Professor Gould.